You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Welcome to Afternoon Cyber Tea, where we talk with some of the biggest security influencers in the industry about what is shaping the cyber landscape and what should be top of mind for the C-suite and other key security decision makers. I'm your host, Dan Johnson, Corporate Vice President of Cybersecurity Solutions at Microsoft. Joining me is Kevin Beaumont. In Kevin's current role, he is the head of security operations. He is also a well-known thought leader on incident detection and response. He's an avid tweeter about all things cybersecurity. Kevin, welcome and thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. So, Kevin, I'm going to dive right in. We, you know, there's so much talk right now about cybersecurity and a lot in the news, and really it's become very high profile. And we think of things like digital privacy and deep fakes and artificial intelligence, machine learning, how we handle election security, misinformation, hybrid cloud security. I'm, I'm deliberately giving you this kind of laundry list of things. But what evolving trends are you seeing and what things are you most concerned about and from a peaking standpoint in cyber? And then what's plummeting and becoming less of concerning to us? Maybe we've gotten ahead of the adversary. So, I mean, for me personally, it seems like trends which, you know, because I've been doing this for 20 years or so now. I think I'm on my 20th year now. Things from 20 years ago are still continuing now. So I think that the monetization of cybercrime is continuing. It feels to me like the bar is lowering with attacks. So as we're getting automated attack frameworks and, to be honest, more information out there about how to attack, it's creating a continuation of something which we've seen for a long time, which is that people are learning how to monetize cybercrime. And a classic example of that is ransomware, where, you know, a few years ago, that wasn't really a major thing. So if you flash back five, 10 years ago, it wasn't a particular thing that, that was concerning people. But nowadays, it's big business. And personally, I think it's going to become an even bigger threat. So by big business, I mean a, a bigger threat to organizations where as as criminals are learning how to execute those kind of attacks and make more money from it, those attacks are continuing to evolve. And I feel like the you know, the more companies are paying, the bigger that problem is potentially getting because the attackers are more resourced. And uh, over time, I think they will be able to pick bigger targets. So you're already starting to see over the last uh, few years, the targeting of of, um, what I call big game. So managed service providers, that kind of thing, where they have access to client networks. So you, you're starting to see attackers are now realizing like, okay, these these organizations have access to other networks. What can we do with that? And that's the kind of thing that keeps me up at night at the moment. So let me pull the thread on that just a little bit. Um, yeah. When you say that the adversaries are well-funded or well-resourced, I believe is actually the terms you use, what do you mean by that? And what type of entities are resourcing them? I think, to be honest, uh, the the companies and organizations that are getting attacked successfully, um, because some people are, p- are paying the ransoms, it's creating a situation where uh, the people executing the attacks are making substantial amounts of money. So if you look at some of the ransomware payments, they're, they're pretty substantial amounts of money. Ransomware attacks are happening every day at uh, 
a scale which you know continues to grow in, in my opinion like it, it we're seeing more and more big companies and organizations getting hit and i'm not saying that the organizations shouldn't necessarily pay the ransom because some organizations are in a situation where they just have no other alternative to that situation but it is creating it's funding an industry so you're ending up with some ransomware or crimeware groups which have millions of dollars of money that they've got from victims which in some cases gives them a bigger attack budget than the organizations they're attacking and that can that situation continues to grow yeah, we often say that cybercrime is a multi-trillion dollar industry that also doesn't have to be concerned with regulations like GDPR, right? And yeah, they can exactly. self-fund very easily. So with that in mind, what can organizations do? If you, if you were, and I'll, I'll put you on the spot for just a second, and you can take a moment, but if you were to think about the top three to five pieces of prescriptive guidance you would give our customers to either prevent or recover from something like a ransomware attack, what advice would you give them? I think for me, a key one which organizations haven't necessarily got to grips with yet, although it's, you know, it's been something that people will have heard over the years for many, many years, which is logging and event monitoring scene type solutions. I think organizations really need to prioritize having logs and crucially what they do with the logs. So you'll find lots of organizations who spend uh, lots of money ingesting logs from all the different systems and then effectively do nothing with it or do very little with it so they've got mountains of data and then they're only looking at very specific things and i think that's catching a lot of organizations out if organizations can get to a place where they're better able to interpret that data and make it meaningful then they've got a much better chance of getting out ahead of attackers because what you typically see is it's unusual for an attacker to get access to a network and then five minutes later deploy ransomware across the whole network. Normally when they gain access, uh, well, for one thing, it's not necessarily the people who gain access to the network who actually deploy the ransomware because there's a there's an ecosystem there where people sell access to corporate networks. So you might find that somebody gains access and then nothing happens for weeks and then that access is sold on. And then when somebody actually gains access and looks around the network, they will typically inspect the network, see where the weak spots are, uh, try and get additional access, that kind of thing. So you do have a, a time period normally to actually be able to intercept what's going on and and do something about it. So for me, the key one is you need to be able to, you need to be monitoring things and find some way of pulling better signals out of a mass of data. Pretty much every company I talk to has that kind of issue where they might have spent the money on some kind of um, security incident events management system, but they haven't necessarily got the value out of it that they were expecting to get. For me, another one is... When you actually have the incident, you need to have a reasonable plan as to how you would actually respond to it. Typically, organizations do have a security incident response plan, and they will have done some kind of scenario testing of that. But I think that organizations haven't necessarily looked at the scenario of ransomware. Um, it's It really is worth, I think, having a, a look at if you were the victim of a global for your, or for your organization, a global ransomware attack, how would you actually respond to that? For example, if you lost email, how would you communicate with staff? Because this really does um, catch organizations out. And crucially, how would you recover from it? Something that's catching a lot of organizations out is that although they've 
got uh, they prepared for disasters so they have some kind of disaster recovery scenario that doesn't necessarily cover a ransomware scenario where their data has been overwritten so in traditional disaster recovery sense you would bring up your systems in a you know a different data center or different geographical location but if you're bringing up the same data that's already been tampered with you can end up in quickly in a situation where you can't recover from that and unless you thought about how you would actually recover from that in particular, some of these deleted backups, you know, you need to have thought through what your steps would actually be. Um, I think it's it's also worth having an honest conversation about what you could actually function with without certain IT services and what the realistic business impacts would be. Like, what what could you run the business with as a base? It's so interesting. So I, w- I want to pull on a few of these things that you talked about. But let's start with the security ecosystem and the cybercrime ecosystem in particular. You talked about the monetization of attacks, but then you talked about in this segment um, a little bit about how one person will gain access to net- network and then they'll sell that access to companies. Talk a little about how those folks actually find each other, how they work together, obviously, we're, you know, without giving up any trade secrets. But how does that cybercrime ecosystem even exist? So some of it, surprisingly, is really blatant. Like, I remember about a year or two ago, there was a website, I think it was called RDP Walmart. RDP is Remote Desktop Protocol, um, and it's a very common system that the companies use to remotely administer systems. And there was literally a website set up which uh, kind of looked like eBay, where you could basically just buy access to companies. So you'd scroll through, you'd look for a company name, and it'd tell you how much the attacker would want. And it'd have a screenshot of a server and you could acquire for, I don't know, say $5, the username and password into a system and IP address into a system over the internet. And that kind of stuff is interesting because it's so blatant and uh, available that that it's a sign of the times, I guess, where brute force attacks are that prevalent that, that people can just operate websites blatantly selling that kind of information. Obviously, you've also got more underground forums, so you've got darknet websites, that kind of thing, reselling credentials. But it's it's a whole emerging ecosystem, which obviously has been in development for a long time, but I think as as time goes on, people are working out how to refine that and new angles that you can monetize in that situation. Like, for example, credential stuffing is, is something that I see on a, you know, if you take any system that's exposed to the internet, even if it's a relatively boring website and you look through the logs for it, there's a high chance that you'll see mass credential stuffing on that website, even if it's something that you wouldn't expect there to be any value on, on somebody trying credentials on that website. So that's where somebody will try millions of different username and password combinations from prior breaches. So if somebody's got a password from somebody's, I don't know, say email account, they can try it on services across the internet. And then those those credentials are then resold when they've been validated on on other websites where you can say like, hey, you can also log into this, this uh, other website with this username and password combination that we've already verified. And then whatever access that would give you may or may not be of interest to somebody. And those kind of ecosystems exist as well where people are reselling those kind of credentials. It's so interesting to me because I, I continually, I think a couple times a week, I get um, an email um, suggesting that I was on websites that would be embarrassing to me if that were released. And it's typically because my credentials from something specific were stolen. They say, hey, we have your credential and we have video of you doing something and we're going to release it. And being a cybersecurity practitioner, I understand 
understand what that is, but I suspect that even those folks are getting some payment for, you know, blackmail of people who wouldn't want their online activities necessarily published. Yeah, it's exactly that. So those kind of credentials are being resold on the internet and then people are coming up with more and more ways of, of monetizing that kind of information. And I realized by talking about monetization, it's almost like this is some kind of normal business activity. It's not. It's all, you know, very questionable legality, but it's happening. And I think as time progresses, people are going to find more and more ways of being able to to use these kind of situations. I think one of the things we find, Kevin, I'm going to go back to your comment about logging and actually getting use out of those, not just ingesting logs, but actually getting use out of them, is if you look at a lot of the big breaches, and I won't call out any in specifically, but there's probably um, a lot of alert fatigue going on in the SOC. They don't know what to respond to, and they don't know what's the highest priority. So do you see that, and does that, that go a little bit towards your, you need to not just ingest logs, but you need to make the best use of those logs? Yeah, so I used to manage a SOC. So in my, in my prior uh, role, I managed a SOC, and it was, it was absolutely something we'd see, which is that if you have lots of alerts and in particular lots of false positives it's a real alert fatigue issue and you will see it in time after time in in breaches at organizations you will see examples of there was actually an alert but nobody looked at it because of the the volume of alerts so in that role one of my key objectives was to reduce the number of false positives like we really needed to get to a position where the the alerts were meaningful and like i say this is a problem that lots of companies are struggling with it's it's in my opinion it's it's reasonably easy as a project to ingest your logs and 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 pull all that stuff together i say easy you know it can be months of work to to get an organization into that kind of situation where you have all the logs but i think some organizations treat that as the finish line and to me that's when the starting gun has gone off when you have the logs the key question for me is what do they show you uh, what's normal and what's not normal if you can get to a situation where you know what's normal in your logs and you know what kind of day-to-day activity is, that kind of thing, then you're in a, a very good position to know what abnormal looks like. And I think that's something that organizations are generally struggling with. I agree with you, by the way. In talking to customers globally, they just have too much information, right? They don't know what to do with it. I want to pivot for a minute and talk about something that's been in the news. I want to talk about the topic of things like deep fakes and misinformation and you know privacy and all of that in context to the responsibility of the cybersecurity industry to help build protections and controls or education. You have a point of view on that yeah i think for me personally i think companies need to be more honest about the issues they're uh, having in those areas Um, and you're starting to see this like especially with gdpr which is you know forcing some organizations to disclose breaches I, i think if you go back 10 years ago exposing that you'd had a data breach for some organizations was generally a bit kryptonite like organizations weren't necessarily alerting people that that if something had gone wrong i think there's probably an advantage in organizations being open and honest about the problems that they're facing because i think people kind of understand now that that not everything is secure and you can take reasonable steps and you can put in appropriate controls but if things go wrong, I need to have confidence that the companies that are dealing with my data say will be honest if if something's gone amiss. If they're open about it in public, then chances are they are also having you know a decent investigation internally as well to figure out what went on. So 
I think deep fakes for me is an, an interesting one where I feel like potentially the media cycle with that has got out ahead of the problem a little bit where yes absolutely as technology evolves you know that is going to become an issue because it, it's an obvious thing where if if the technology exists out there to provide completely bulletproof videos or bulletproof audio completely faking something how does anybody trust anything however i think at the moment if you look at the quality of of videos out there experts can tell that there's something wrong with those videos like that's how you know these kind of things are being found so it kind of feels for me with uh, the issue of defects at the moment i think the the news cycle might have got a little bit ahead of the problem um it doesn't feel like that's a massive problem at the moment but watch this space (laughs) I think that's good. And I I think we do tend to, because it's something that it's more consumable, right? For your average consumer who doesn't work in cybersecurity to understand a video was faked than a lot of the topics we talk about. So that's probably why the media has really grabbed onto it um, at this point in time. It's a perfect media story. And also it kind of ties into the narrative of different things we're seeing now about, you know, disinformation and and those, those kind of issues. So I can absolutely see why it's really taken off the story you know i did play around with some of the tools that enable te to make deepfake videos and i tried making one of myself so i took um, a video of somebody else and tried putting myself into the video and the tools are, are cool and it's definitely developing but it does not feel like it, it's bulletproof technology yet Excellent. So last thing I want to put you on the spot is what is most concerning to you right now that you're seeing from a trend standpoint growing? Multiple different things, some of which I've already touched upon. So credential stuffing, I think, is something that feels like, to me, it's flying under the radar. Like I say, when I, when I look at organization systems, if I look at logs of pretty much anything they have facing the internet, if there's a username and password prompt on it, you can almost guarantee that there's credential stuffing happening on those portals. And I think organizations are finding out about that kind of thing much further down the line, maybe when it generates other problems or when when their credential lists are on sale. So that's something that I think um, organizations need to get a grip on. I think another one, which, you know, is, is really a very basic and generic statement, but configuration mistakes basic configuration errors keep catching organizations out at a scale which i think surprises many people i think that's a gap um, especially because in in the age of cloud computing where it's very easy to provision services which is great from a from an it development point of view it's less great from a security point of view when it's also then very easy to make mistakes and uh, we keep seeing this where you know some of the the largest data breaches that we've had in in modern times are simply because simple mistakes have been made and that feels like something which we as an industry haven't necessarily got to grips with yet there's definitely room for improvement on dealing with how we spot those configuration mistakes. That makes a lot of sense. I think that it's, we tend to find that in most breaches, it is 
five to seven things, and some of them are configuration mistakes that are, especially when you get to cloud security, right, and cloud breaches, that configuration to the things that seem to be really vexing our customers right now. Yeah, I mean, the those tools, they're made to be accessible and to allow you to deploy things very quickly, which is absolutely great from a, from a business and development point of view. It's, it's fantastic. But like I say, it can also, it's a double-edged sword, basically. It can also lead to uh, issues further down the line. Excellent. Well, Kevin, I really, really appreciate you making the time to join us. And I know that um, into the time zone, I can tell the audience that you joined us quite late. So thank you so much. I really appreciate uh, having you on and the informative conversation that I know will be useful to a lot of our audience. Uh, Thank you very much for having me on. It's been a pleasure. And thanks also to the audience for listening in. Join us next time on Afternoon Cyber Tea. Please subscribe to Afternoon Cyber Tea on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One so you don't miss an episode. Make sure you rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends. Thank you for listening and join us next time for a new episode of Afternoon Cyber Tea with Ann Johnson of Microsoft. This week on the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Podcast, join us as we dig deep into the XZ backdoor with its finder, Andreas Freund, and senior security researcher, Thomas Rochia. Be sure to listen in and follow us at msthreatintelpodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.